This episode of Fruit Bowl was made possible by an anonymous donation through our fiscal sponsorship with Seattle's Northwest Film Forum. This helped me pay for transcripts, music, and website maintenance. So I just want to personally thank the donor who made this possible. This last year has been more of a struggle for me to balance the responsibilities of my day job with my ambitious goals with the podcast. And I believe that the time has come for me to dedicate myself full-time to Fruit Bowl. But I can't do that without first having some income security. So I've started applying for grants, and I'm also searching for more monthly Patreon subscribers. Currently, we are up to only $264 a month on Patreon, and I'd like to get to $1,000 per month so I'm able to do things like work on the feature-length Fruit Bowl documentary and produce more episodes of the podcast more often. So check out all the different ways you can help me achieve this goal by visiting fruitbowlpodcast.com slash donate. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. I'm a radical slut and my brother is a serial monogamist. I think for some people, Wyoming is super beautiful, but for me, I was like, I need to get out of here. (laughs) I grew up in a, a home full of beautiful, angry women. The extent of the talk that my mother gave me was, R.C., boys only want one thing from you. Don't give it to them. Nothing would make my parents more happy than if I were to settle down with, like, a Vietnamese woman and have our, like, 2.5 children. Welcome to Season 5 of Fruit Bowl, an oral history of queer sex. I'm your host and the creator of Fruit Bowl, Dave Quantic. Five years ago, I began filming interviews with queer people about their coming-of-age years and the different ways they discovered their sexual identities. Since then, I've created four podcast seasons of episodes that feature just one person's story. But it was never my intention to keep these stories separate from each other. The plan has always been to create a long-form Fruit Bowl documentary that describes queer coming of age by editing parts of interviews together, creating a kind of virtual conversation. This season of the podcast represents the beginning of this process. I'll admit to being hesitant to begin this daunting task, so I asked my fellow Fruit Bowl editor Bailey Becker to help me assemble a master transcript document that included all of the Fruit Bowl interviews, and we both discovered that Google Docs have a limit of 1.02 million characters per document. As a result, the Fruit Bowl transcripts had to be split up into three different Google Docs. That is a lot of stories that I needed to pour through and start grouping together. But we powered through, and I'm so excited to finally share the results with you. The response I get most from listeners who write me is that Fruit Bowl has helped them more than years of therapy ever could. I think it's because there's a cumulative effect when you start to listen to everyone's stories. Similarities start to pop up. You begin to connect the dots and you realize you're not the only one. It's my hope that Season 5 feels like a group therapy session, where we all share different parts of our stories in order to help each other accept ourselves, release the shame, and feel less alone. 
Origins, Volume 1, Families and Hometowns. When I first started interviewing people for football, I focused mostly on sexy stories and misadventures. Stories about first investigations into sex, hunting for porn, and embarrassing hookups. I love all these kinds of anecdotes, but I soon realized that sexy stories are often not that interesting in and of themselves. It's much more relatable if you first know where the storytellers have come from, and their journey of self-acceptance since first realizing they were different from your typical, everyday, boring, straight people. So, for these first few episodes of Season 5, I've decided to start at the very beginning, back to our origins, our birth families, the hometowns and communities where we grew up. Some of these stories contain surprising moments of compassion and understanding by our family members and friends. But, predictably, many begin with crushing self-doubt. Shame about an emerging sexuality and spectacular failures of family when we need them the most. I know these kinds of stories are hard to hear sometimes, but consider this. The people telling these stories are at a place in their life now where they can reflect on the hard times of the past, knowing that they're in a better place and they've come so far from where they started. Chapter 1. Adam Adam grew up in the suburbs of New Jersey in the 90s where being Jewish was not as common as you might think. And being less than masculine could get you beat up. Uh, hi, my name is Adam. I'm uh, 38 and I graduated high school in 1999. I grew up in Paramus, New Jersey. I, um, it's a suburb of New York. Uh, for people who don't know, it's about 15 uh, minutes, 20 minutes across the George Washington Bridge. Paramus is known as the sort of commerce center of northern New Jersey. For most of my childhood, New Yorkers would flock to my town because they had at the height of it seven malls uh, in one town. And so when people talk about like Jersey and the malls and um, they're usually talking about Paramus. But um, what was your favorite? Um, well, I really, I really like Paramus Park, uh, which was a simpler mall than the Garden State Plaza, but the Garden State Plaza was overwhelming, and also I was always terrified that I was going to run into bullies, uh, which was a kind of recurrent theme of my childhood, just being really scared of bullies. Paramus is a suburb of New York, so on a lot of levels, there's a, lot, there's a, a liberal current, there's like a lot of, there's a lot of Democrats who who live there, um, but it definitely was conservative in, in, in certain ways. And I, I think what was interesting about Paramus is that it's a much more diverse place than a lot of places that are small town suburbs, even in northern New Jersey. Um, you know, there were a lot of Indian people and a lot of Asian people and not very many Jewish people, which I was. And, you know, I was usually one of two Jewish kids in my class. It was more that there was sort of undercurrents of racism and white privilege and Christianity, and that kind of all swirled together to be sort of conservative. 
The makeup in my family was uh, pretty traditional. Uh, my mom and my dad uh, lived together. They are together still. I was the only child until seven. My brother came along at seven years old. My brother is gay also, and he has had a steady boyfriend since college with barely like six month breaks in between them. And, and, the, and the relationships last for years, you know? Um, and some of them are not so good, and now he's in a really good relationship with somebody that uh, we really like. And he's been with him for a number of years, and they live together in a very perfectly arranged uh, apartment in Long Island City, and they're both professionals. And he is actually, it's really funny, it's like I'm a radical slut, and my brother is a serial monogamist. Were my parents accepting that I would like have a sexuality? I think yes. Did I think that, that my parents would be accepting of me being gay? No. But I didn't think that because I saw some evidence that they didn't like gay people or they never said anything. And my parents are very liberal and I think they, you know, my father is a student of literature and, and you know, not completely, you know, head in the sand about issues of sexuality. He has friends who are, sec who are homosexual. And, um, you know, my mother went to Wellesley. I'm sure she knew people who were a lesbian. Um, I, not that I ever heard or knew or anything about that. Um, but I just kind of got the sense that, like, I didn't know what would happen. I mean, in a way, they, like, when I told my mother, she was accepting. And, in a way, she didn't throw me out of the house. She supported me. She said, da, 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 da. but, you know, privately, I'd sort of hear, you know, that, that, um, she was sad that uh, I wasn't gonna have kids, and they would both be sort of encouraging me, maybe you could have a kid, maybe, you know, you sure you wouldn't want to? Da, da, da. And I think that sort of ties in with, you know, what a lot of Jews feel about both the Jewish bloodline, which we hear from Jewish leaders is constantly getting eroded, and also just that their family line would be ended, and that given the history of how much they, struggled to survive during the Holocaust, um, there was a kind of a sense of sadness, you know, and there was a lot to place on my feet because I, I can't be responsible for my desire to not have a kid, you know, and, and like, hello, where, where am I going to put the kid in this room? Okay. I make like no money, you know, I'm an artist. What you want me to have a kid to support now? Like, why do you want to ruin my life? And there was also a sense that I couldn't really be open with them about sex or sexuality. They knew I was gay, but like nobody ever asked me um, who I was having sex with, who I was sleeping with. I felt like my mother, when I came out, she became a little bit standoffish with me or like just didn't want to hear about certain things, you know? And like, I remember once, like I showed her a picture of myself in the back of um, a Next magazine. I was like, look, they took my picture, you know? It was like a party photo. And, but all the other photos were like of the black party or something. And she was like, mm, put that away, you know? I had an early incident when I was like 12 or 11 and I went into a convenience store that we visited a lot to get soda for my mom and and when I was there I was like oh I'm gonna get a magazine or something and I went to the magazine shop, uh, sort of stand and I was looking and I saw this magazine called Adam 
uh, which is my name, and I was like, and it was gay porno. And this magazine had been placed like in the kids section. So I was like, and I was like, so gobsmacked by all this stuff, you know? The guy, the, and the owner like caught me like, yeah, hey, what are you doing? Look, stop looking at, and I was like, oh, okay. And I like paid, he was like, you are not 18. And I was like, okay, I'm sorry. Ah. And I went out in the car and I felt so guilty. Like, I, I think also when I was 11, 12, I had been sort of somewhat indoctrinated or hopeful that there was a God and that he was going to, like, make shit work out for me because, like, it hadn't so far. So I was like, okay, I'm, I'm, I have to obey God's laws. I was, you know, and I, I felt like I had done something wrong and I had this pit of guilt in the, my stomach. It was so intense and painful and I just thought, this is what guilt feels like. And by the end of the thing, the, the car ride, I was sort of like, I'd been praying and I'd been, I like confessed to my mother. And I said, I did this thing and, and, and I looked at this magazine and, and, and one thing I haven't told you is the magazine was like guys. And she was like, she didn't say anything bad, really. She, she didn't ground me. She wasn't angry. She just said, you know, that I probably shouldn't do that again. And um, she wasn't going to ground me, but you know, she, thank you for for being honest and um, and then um, when I got out of the car I farted and I realized that the all the pit of stuff in my stomach was not guilt but was like just terrible gas and I felt so stupid for telling her and for like processing it that way but I think I kind of just had to and then we sort of forgot about it until like I was 16 I did another like sort of mini coming out after because I was having dreams that were gay and sexual in nature. And I remember telling my father, you know, I had this dream and I'm really worried it means I'm gay. He's like, well, dreams are dreams and dreams don't mean exactly what you think they mean. And so, you know, you, I don't think you have to worry about anything. I think really what was going on was both my parents probably from an early age suspected that I might be gay um, because I was artistic, because I was maybe Faye, or I think that they just both were like, kind of like, this is probably what it's going to be. And they were worldly enough to be like, well, when he comes out, okay, we can deal with it. There were still things that I like sort of fought back against them. Like I said, with my mother not wanting to hear about that, which sort of still goes on today. Uh, they don't, you know, we don't talk about any my sex parties that I throw. We don't talk about anything that I do you know, or my identity as like a queer, kinky, you know, slutty hedonist. But it does feel like that there's a part of me that I just can't access with them. And I've made, over the last like 20 years, I've really tried hard to make inroads. I just like spending time with them. I don't, it doesn't need to be a dinner, you know, and we can just go see a movie or do something. And my father has done a lot to sort of correct a, a lot of the sort of disinvolvement he had with me during my teenage years when I was really kind of a fucked up asshole. And he's, he calls me every week or so. He asks me about my sex life. You know, he wants, he doesn't really need to know the details, but he wants to make sure that like, if you're getting laid, that's good. I've been pretty open with him lately about it just being like, no, I sleep with a lot of people and 
um, I have a number of different, you know, friends with benefits and um, I deeply love these people and we have great sex, which is nice. So I just said to him, like, I don't, I'm not really seeing long-term coupling as something that I'm going to be particularly successful at. And he's okay with that, you know? He's like, okay, well, okay. A couple more years, he might, they might want to come to my sex parties. He might want to... Um... <laughs> Chapter 2 Elliot. As I mentioned in my introduction, I'm going to try to include a wide variety of stories in each episode this season. Elliot's story is one of those examples of the failure of the family. I know it's hard to listen to stories about abuse and neglect, especially when the subjects are children, but I personally find Elliot's story inspiring because they took control of their life and advocated for themselves. My name is Elliot. I am 27 and I graduated high school in 2012. I grew up in Wyoming, in Casper, Wyoming. Kind of rural, like it's probably one of the bigger towns in that state, but still small enough that you like, you knew most people. And I lived there probably like 18 years of my life. So, and definitely like find myself sort of identifying as like a country queer cow them, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> yeah, when I think of Wyoming, and I think when a lot of people think of Wyoming, um, and it's not wrong necessarily to think of like Yellowstone, Jackson Hole, like it is very beautiful, but it's also like only like the top left corner of the state, whereas the rest of it to me is flat and prairie, and I hate it. <laughs> like it was so dreary. Um, and so I think for some people, Wyoming is super beautiful. But for me, I was like, I need to get out of here. <laughs> As a child, I had mom and dad, and I had two half siblings that I lived with and like a third that I didn't really know. We all had the same mom, but different dads. And my parent, who at the time was dad, when I was like 14 or 15, came out as trans. Um, and it was around the same time that I also was going into foster care. Like sh she shared that news. At that time, I definitely had a lot of transphobia to work through for myself, whether it was internalized or otherwise. I was like, the person who I've known as dad wants to be mom. And this is like rocking my 15 year old world. And in a state that, like, I'm like, how do I even deal with this when I know that, like, other people are going to struggle with it? Like, I didn't have the, the concept or community or even other adults outside of that parent to help me understand, like, that's a whole lot of bullshit. And, like, the world's making you feel that way, but, like, you should just love your parent. But I experienced uh, sexual abuse with um, one of my siblings when I was uh, probably, like, pre-K and maybe into kindergarten, first grade. Somewhere in that time period was the main amount of time where that happened. At that time, I was a young girl um, experiencing it from a sibling who was a woman. And so this confusion around, did I ask for this? Did I enjoy this? Should I have not? Like, so much that was swirling around that, that of course that really built in a lot of shame that couldn't get unpacked until later when I had a therapist to be like, oh, of course I felt these ways. That doesn't mean that I'm a bad person. There's a lot that happened there that shouldn't have happened. And so... I think that was an, an additional layer of like women with women 
does this feel bad? I think it feels bad because it's my sibling, but I like women. That doesn't feel bad. So that being really complicated, and there was no one to like unpack that with. But that wasn't a conversation I felt like I could have um, with my parents. And when I finally told my parents what had happened, the response I got was like, not really supportive or helpful or understanding. It was just kind of like annoyed that I was bringing it up. <laughs> so, yeah. My parents just didn't really step in and show up for us very well. So there was more neglect, which is like a primary reason people go into care, more than abuse, more than people realize. My mom was a hoarder, not my mom who's trans, but the other mom was a hoarder. So the house was a mess um, and there was a lot of cats. And so basically for me, it was like, this is so bad. And I know this is not what my friends are living in because I've been at their houses. Um, I don't want to be here anymore. And I've asked my parents, like, I remember asking my parents, like, can we have less cats? Can we clean the house? Can I have a better bed? All these things. And that wasn't happening. Um, so that's kind of when it went to the point of like, I'm going to advocate for myself and get out of this. So I went into care the summer between middle school and high school, which in some ways was kind of helpful because I felt like I was headed into high school without people necessarily knowing. So it was already a lot, but it felt more doable because I got to start a school year. Had like a pretty good foster mom. Like I was fortunate that I didn't move around a ton. I had a foster parent for about three years and she was fine, but I also like, I couldn't come out until I left care. Um, I usually reference this moment where we were watching Grey's Anatomy and Callie in Arizona have like the first on-screen kiss. And I'm, I don't know, I'm probably like 17 at this point. And I'm like, I know I'm gay and I'm definitely not telling anyone. <laughs> and these two women kiss on TV and I'm like, holy shit, this is awesome. And like the comment I hear from her is, ew, gross, or that's gross. And I immediately internally was like, I can't talk to this person about this, at least not right now. And so a few years later, she called me and she said, why didn't you come out to me? And I was like, like this literally this moment told me I couldn't. And so going into care, I think meant that I got to see the world a bit differently, but I also got to finally be in not so much of a crisis survival mode that I was living in with my family, but it didn't give me enough freedom to like come out. It's made me want to like be more curious about that, but I still felt like to have housing, I have to prioritize that over who I am. Um, and I can get to that in a few years. So I'll just ride this out, get what I can, and then I can do whatever I want. I didn't get moved around a lot because I was like, I can't have problem behaviors. I need to be um, obedient, basically. And so I think that came off as like, what a great student, what a great kid. But it was very much like, I need to do this because I can't imagine something worse happening. Um, and it's a form of control, right? I can control this, I can be good. So I stayed in Casper and when I went into care, I think I kind of wondered if that would happen. And there's a process when you enter care um, where they have to at least try and see if you have any other family um, of some kind, even a cousin. So I was a little worried about like, will I get placed somewhere else? But um, I just needed, um, I think, to stay there at least to get through high school. But then of course, once I was in college, I was like, I need to get the fuck out of here. <laughs> I would love to be able to say I have a close relationship with my trans parent, but even when I talk, have talked with her since, I think our relationship has been different because I mentioned to her, like, like she was the person who was the working parent, so she would leave for work and we would be stuck at home with my mom who was more abusive. That really had an impact that I don't think we've been able to work through because as much as I'm willing to work through that, I, she gets really defensive and we can't, we can't seem to get past that. <laughs> when I called her and said, hey, I'm trans also, the conversation really quickly went to, well, do you remember when you were in care and people were mean to me about me being trans? 
Uh, and like the conversation became about her and I was like, okay, <laughs> I just, I was hoping this would be a moment, but it's not and that's fine, I'm gonna go. I'm glad for who I am right now and there's introductions to things I got that like I would have been perfectly happy to have learned a different way, <laughs> you know. Chapter three, Josh. Josh had a lot of different cultural forces working against him when he was growing up as a sensitive and shy queer boy in South Texas in the late 80s and early 90s. Toxic, Texas-sized ideas about masculinity, the cultural expectations of Latino machismo, the puritanical ethics of Southern Baptists, not to mention a baseline community hostility towards queerness. Josh. I'm 43 and I graduated high school in 1994. I was born in Houston, Texas, and I lived there until I was 14, 15. And then I moved to South Texas, uh, to McAllen, Texas, which is in the Rio Grande Valley, like right on the border of Mexico and Texas. Uh, and I spent my teenage years there in the, in the valley my family was really involved in the church and um, especially my dad's side. My grandfather was like a big uh, Pentecostal minister in San Antonio. So it was like this very super religious, we grew up Southern Baptist. So it was like very, very stern religious household. My parents divorced when I was 12. So I went to go with my mom and then she got together with the guy who became my stepdad and he was like super, he, what, they're still together and now he's officially my stepdad, they got married. Uh, but he's like very, very conservative, uh, like grew up in the military his whole life and was in the military his whole life, like until uh, maybe 10 years ago or something. And so I would say on the whole, it was very conservative. <laughs> I have two older sisters, um, I'm the youngest. There's a, quite a bit of an age gap between us. I think I was kind of like the accident. <laughs> There's like six years between me and my sisters, and they're, I think, a year or two years apart. That To me, I, I idolized my sisters. They were always like into cool stuff and music and living life ahead of me, so I always sort of deferred to them. Um, but when my parents got divorced, they were pretty much kind of out of the picture. I mean, they were like off in their 20s doing whatever they were going to do. And so uh, my stepdad had two kids and they were in high school. They were like 16, 17. I had a stepbrother and a stepsister. I was 12, like 13 around that, t that age. So I moved in with them and they were completely different. Uh, than my my sisters. I mean, they were just like completely the opposite personality-wise, like culturally. So it was like this very weird transition for me. Um, I always felt like a bit of an outcast. I mean, I was like the youngest of all of those families. I was kind of left to my own devices, which is probably why I became like an artist or like a, you know, um, creator because the that was really what I'd retreated kind of into my own, my own world, you know, like movies, music, books. Uh, that was kind of my life when I was a kid.
there's that quote from like uh, before night falls Ronaldo Arenas like uh, that he grew up he was like I grew up in a in a a home full of beautiful angry women <laughs> that was kind of my life like you know I had these two older sisters and my mom and my dad who was like this very like this itinerant alcoholic who was never really around and when he was he was kind of not really there so you know it was really just me and my sisters and my sisters in particular were quite wild in their own way and they were teenagers at the time so it was like I didn't I never felt like the female figure in the female body was never never mysterious to me you know like I knew about their boyfriends I knew I you know I was really curious I'd always like try to spy on them you know whatever they were doing with guys that they would bring over and I would have like little crushes on the guys that they would date and stuff and I don't remember not knowing like the mechanics of what happens with heterosexual sex anyway and I also was totally unsupervised as a kid I mean I could no one ever like monitored what I watched or what I consumed so I would watch movies I would you know that had sex in them I would read books that had sex in them so it was never never really a mystery to me like the technicalities of it I understood but the um, experience of it I always you know was very mysterious to me until much later sex was never talked about in our house I mean it was like super forbidden both my mom and my dad were very, you know, religious in their own way. And in my dad, in particular, I know that, you know, he came from like a really big family. Um, he had like 11 or 12 brothers and sisters, and they were all grew up in the Pentecostal church, you know, evangelical, Latino, very strict. And from what I know, my dad's family, he was quite abused, I think, mentally, physically and emotionally. Um, which is probably why he turned out the way he did. But in, I think in kind of Latino cultures in general, like it, at least in my generation, I mean, I think it tended to be quite machismo, quite, you know, masculine or macho. It was, and the boy in the family, I was the one boy in the family. So it was kind of like you were sort of expected to have this kind of like free reign of whatever, you know. And since I was gay, you know, it was even doubly weird for me because not only did I not have anybody to explain sex to me in a way that was like nurturing and kind and, you know, all those things that you should probably do when you're a parent to think that you were gay was like a horrible, it was like the worst thing that could possibly happen to a person, you know. And I knew from like when I was, you know, from when I can remember having sexual feelings, they were always about boys or men. So it was always something that I kept very hidden. I think I remember asking my, you know, I remember like the day at school, you know, where they kind of like show you like the puberty film of like, what's going to happen to you when you have like body hair and grow up, you know? And I remember asking my father about it and he just kind of ignored me. Like he didn't say, he just sort of, I remember asking him about what, it, what puberty was, you know, like what was going to happen. And he just sort of, pretended I didn't say it and kind of like went on his way. That was kind of the house I grew up in. It was quite secretive and things that you didn't talk about. A 
that's kind of embarrassing because it was really just about like, I mean, a lot of kids learn about sex, you know, through movies, through television, through um, media, I guess. And now, I mean, I can't even imagine like kids nowadays having access to the internet and like a whole, you know, just endless information about an endless like misinformation about it, you know, like you know, I had friends, you know, like really close friends. We would talk about it and sometimes they would explain stuff to me. I mean, I kind of knew the mechanics of like, I think because of my sister's like vaginas and penises and stuff. And I knew like, I kind of knew how the whole thing worked, you know, but gay sex in particular was like, I couldn't even fathom what, like what happened or how it happened, you know, like, to me, like, you know, two men fucking was like beyond belief. I didn't even, I think maybe I didn't even realize or think that it really happened, that people really did that, you know? In a way, it was kind of like I could sort of intellectualize sex as a, a young kid. Like, I understood it and understood what happened. But the actual, like, conception of it, like, in reality, was there was like a disconnect in my mind, you know? I think I was quite prudish in a way because I'd had such a stern view of sex. You know, the people that I knew that had sex were always very troubled. I knew a lot of people that had like girls in my life that had children out of wedlock or, you know, you know, children then when they were teenagers and I, uh, fam like family members that I knew and they always, you know, had such, I saw that they had such a hard time with it. And plus I was gay, which I knew was wrong, you know, and I, I knew that I could never tell anybody about that, you know, that it was something I probably had to like take to my grave or something. And I think maybe I, that was another reason why I felt like this really weird intellectual distance from it. It was kind of like, I knew that maybe it wasn't something that I, I was ever going to be a part of or something, you know, uh, because I knew I, I wanted to be with men and, you know, and I knew that was sort of forbidden. You know, my mother was a, um, her occupation when I was a kid was that she would, she worked for like a management company that managed these apartment complexes around Houston. And so we would live in these apartment complexes. Um, she would work there and we would live there. And, you know, in those, those complexes, you, you sort of form these like really close relationships with the families and people that live there. And I remember there was this really mean boy that, that I had like a super crush on. I mean, I, I, I think maybe that was the first time I'd ever really thought like found a guy or a boy that I was like, wow, like I felt there's this a magnetic attraction and I just kind of wanted to be around him all the time, even though he was like horribly mean to me, <laughs> but he was essentially a bully in front of people. He would kind of demean me and, and like put me down. And I think maybe we had a fight one time, like a physical fight. But in, then in private, we would sometimes be alone together and he would be like normal. It's so, it's so strange to even think about this because I felt like, again, I feel like this is another example of me going from like zero to a million. Uh, and, you know, and I was really young too, like seven, eight, something like that. You know, my mom would be off at work and my, my grandmother sometimes would stay with us and she would, this was during the summer. So I was off from school and she would oftentimes sort of take care of me. And 
you know, and in Houston in the summer, it's super hot outside. So we would go to like the swimming pool in the apartment complex and, you know, and I would spend like all day out there, you know, cause I didn't have anything else to do. I'd watch TV and play video games and then go to the pool. And I think one day I went out there and it was just him. It was like him and me and we were hanging out and, um, I was like, why don't you come over to my, my apartment, um, and have, I feel like this is so weird. It's like, uh, something I'd probably do like later on in my life, like trying to seduce somebody. Um, but I'd be like, you know, I, I think I said to him, like, let's go. My, my grandmother's making lunch. Do you want to have lunch at my house? And he came over and we were watching TV. And somehow I had this like idea that I was going to, I was like going to take a shower with him. I don't know why, how I imagined this or why I felt like I had the gumption to do that, but I did. And he was like, okay, you know, so we went up to my sister's, my sister shared a room at the time and uh, went into their shower and took a shower together, like got naked and took shower together. And um, we didn't do anything. It was like, you know, we, it wasn't like we were um, touching each other or got erections or anything like that. Um, I mean, we weren't in there for very long, but my grandmother came and caught us and uh, like walked in on us and she, she freaked the fuck out. She was like, chased him out of the, the room and like and then she told my mom about it and my mom was really furious at me too and I always think like she knew I think at that point you know that I was gay and that it was going to be an issue for me but I think she always just sort of thought like maybe it's not true or whatever and this is like probably a heavy issue in my life in general because my father was so he was he was incredibly violent and an addict, but he was also quite distant. He had a very violent, like intense relationship with my mom and my sisters because I think because they were a bit older than I was. I mean, his abuse to me was that he just ignored me. He never really talked to me very much and kind of was never around, you know. So I think I had this sort of running thing in my life where I would sort of chase after these mysterious, ethereal, kind of like abusive people. In a way, I kind of know that about myself now, so I don't really, it's not really a kind of a thing that happens to me much anymore, but not so much abusive, but I think more kind of like out of reach, people that were kind of unavailable to me. I think in a way, we kind of all do that. You know, we all sort of like have these early relationships and you know when we sort of start to have intimate relationships with people we kind of gravitate towards something that we longed for in those relationships for me as like a gay queer person I mean I was very much like punished for it you know my mother really um, did not react to it very well like I didn't have a positive outcome from it so I think in a way it just sort of fed into my own sense of self-doubt, you know, and self-loathing for being gay or queer. I mean, which I think is probably what, you know, a lot of people from conservative religious families um, experience, you know. I, I never could understand why people found me attractive or anything like that, you know. 
it was a very long time before I was able to like own that part of myself and understand that part of myself, you know, that people would ever want to be intimate with me because I had this notion from such a young age that what I was was damaged and, you know, and I tried very hard, I think, as a lot of queer people do when they're not accepted to be what they're not. So it was like a process, like, a you know, it's been sort of a process throughout my whole life, I think, to like love myself in that way, I guess. Chapter 4, R.C. A self-described army brat, R.C. moved around a lot and was raised as a girl by their parents. Extended family included friends and relatives that, for better or worse, created a community which was at times both supportive and hostile, depending on who it was. I interviewed R.C. in July of 2019 in Oakland, California. The background noises you'll hear are the BART train, which was just right outside, and R.C.'s very affectionate pit bull, Emilu. My name is R.C., and I'm 35 years old. I'm a military brat, or a former military brat, so I moved around a lot. Um, I was born in the Philippines, Mm. and my mom and dad met there. I guess fell in love, and we moved to San Diego. And so a lot of the time I tell people that I'm from California because I've spent a majority of my life here. If I am going to give you like a quick timeline, it would be San Diego until 94, until I was 10. And then Hawaii for three years. And then Washington. So I lived in Seattle for two years from like 97 to 99. And then in 99, my family moved to Guam. Pretty nuclear family. That was me, my mom my dad and my brother. Just us most of the time, since we moved around a lot, we weren't really with extended family. Sometimes parents, friends would be introduced as aunts and uncles, but mostly just us four. When I was 10, going back to San Diego, My dad would be out to sea for very long. He'd do six months stretches out on the boat, come back for a couple weeks, and then go out for six months again. My parents were in their 30s and very young, healthy, sexual people. And my first, like, you know, inkling that sex was a thing was because of my mom and dad. You know, like, they were never shy about having fun at first I was like is are they okay you know like that I remember being like oh my god are you okay and then eventually when I did a little more research realized that something else was going on yeah as a kid I'm like oh okay that's interesting and that just kind of like created the spark for everything else I'm sure but I think Because of my introduction to sex, I feel like a big part of my sexuality is hearing it. And like a big part of my turn on is like hearing 
sex, hearing sexy sounds, hearing sounds of excitement, you know? Yeah, it was, hey, these sounds are familiar. Okay, this must be what's going on there. Um, You know, like, being locked away in a room for a couple of hours, like, loud music playing, hearing things over music. I mean, it's... It makes so much sense to me as an adult (laughs) that looking back on that, I'm kind of like, oh my God, okay. But uh, then I'm just like, what's going on? (laughs) And then at night I would um, stay up late and watch like the nudie channel. (laughs) I don't even know what channel it was. It was just, I knew it was sex because I could hear it. I couldn't see it every once in a while, maybe like, I could see like the zigzaggy like scrambled picture that resulted in a really funny experience. So my mom walked in on me watching that and that damn remote control like TVs and the TVs now are great. But like back in the 90s when you really like needed that remote control to like sense your button pushing it just it wouldn't, you know, like peak like I need you to come through for me time and it always shits out so I was watching the nudie channel my mom comes in I can't get the TV to turn off in time I can see her coming and I'm like trying to turn off the TV and it just doesn't work because the remote was a piece of crap or maybe the battery was dead who knows and she walks in and she sees it and she looks at the TV and she looks at me and she just starts to laugh she just starts to laugh at me and then she turns off the tv and she's like go to bed and then the next day when her friends are over she was like oh my god guess what rc did and it just was just this huge joke so i remember when when we won the fight for marriage equality i think in california and my mom called me and she she was like the gays can get married, yay, you know? And it was just like funny. It was like, she's like, yeah, they can be in bad marriages too and stuff like that. And I was like, wow, okay, cool. When I was little, my mom was doing my hair. I remember I was 12. And the extent of the talk that my mother gave me was... RC, boys only want one thing from you. Don't give it to them. (laughs) And I was like, okay. At that point, I was, you know, interested in boys, but not sure. Just kind of shy. Um, But horny. So it didn't take long after turning 13 for that to happen. And my dad never said anything. No, he was never about the talk at all. They trusted that I would figure it out on my own. (laughs) I I think that they would rather not. I have a nine, well, she's 11, 11 year old niece. And when my niece came to visit, when she was 10, she asked me and my, my partner, what is sex? Where do babies come from? And we drew out a diagram for her And we're like, look, this is how it happens. And we uh, showed her some pictures and talked to her about, like, you know, 
when you are ready to do this. And it gave us like a segue into talking about consent and all of those things. So I think that if faced with the challenge of explaining sex and where like where things go to children, I have a feeling that I I want to believe this and we'll we'll see, but I have a feeling that all of us that a lot of us queers that had parents that did not give us the sex talk would want to pay that forward, you know, in a way like, hey, this is something I didn't get, so let me just do you one solid. Mm-hmm. And I find that a lot of the the people that I know at least in my my inner circle and and you know, like outer circles, a lot of us are committed to writing some wrongs that <laughs> that were had in our lives with the the generations after us. Mm-hmm. We lived in an apartment complex in San Diego and there were a lot of like young bros living there too, you know, and they all <laughs> So they had um a bunch of like nudie magazines and one of them threw them all the way in the dumpster area but some of them like fell out of the dumpster and made it to the ground so i managed to find one and i started looking through it and i would you know hide in the bushes behind the dumpsters in my apartment building and like in my apartment complex and like go through these magazines we got Showtime at one point in time, and I would watch Red Shoe Diaries. I remember that was a big one. My dad was a, my dad probably still is, sorry dad, a really big porn consumer, but that was like during the day of like VHSs and DVDs, so there was actual like tapes in my household. There was a really nasty one that uh, I will never forget the title, ever. It is like ingrained in my mind. Black and white pussy party. <laughs> like what? One that I was very fond of and watched a lot, especially, and this was like when we lived in Hawaii. So my dad had has friends who have the same last name as us. And it's uh, my uncle Aaron and my aunt Jackie and their three kids. And we were all around the same age. Um, their first two, their, their two eldest were uh, teenagers at, so they were like maybe three or four years older than me. Uh, we would all hang out together when our you know parents were working during the summer. And we would watch this tape called Amazon Girls of Go-Go. It was very good. It was a cinematic like masterpiece for pornography. Um, so these men get, uh, they, you know, wash ashore on this island somewhere in the middle of nowhere, and it's populated by these Amazonian women, and they take them in as sex slaves. And it was, like, really well thought out. It was, like, more of a movie with some sex in it. So I think that's why I liked it a lot. It was, like, fantasy, and I love fantasy. I think beyond that, I can't remember what else that movie was about because I was just too stimulated. And we would all watch it together. And it had a plot. And so we like really liked it because it was kind of like a fantasy film, but then there was all this like softcore porn in it. And I think that's because it wasn't very sexual for us yet. 
Mm-hmm. Like I think the the switch had been flipped, but not quite yet. I feel like a lot of my life, a lot of my sexual exploration has been with other, like in the beginning with other members of my family or not. Oh my God, that sounds gross. Uh, no, I mean like extended like members, like people who are supposed to be my cousins, but they're not actually like related to me. They're just like my parents' friends, child. So they're like my cousins and we're like young and we're exploring ourselves and all sorts of stuff. (laughs) So I feel like a lot of my experiences of sex were not solitary, like, like at all. It was less sexual with other people. So it was more about exploration and, oh my God, there's something funny on TV that we're not supposed to be watching. Um, I've had, I've gotten in trouble as a child several times watching porn with my, my cousins, you know? Like, it was just, we're children, we're curious, we're about something, and this is there, and might as well, you know, figure this out together. <laughs> I lived in San Diego I was really young so it was like before my teen years Mm. now when I started actually having sex I was a teenager and since we were in the military um, we moved around a lot and at that time I was on I was in Guam so so I spent my high school uh, years on Guam growing up there and Wow, that was, it was pretty phenomenal. You know, it's a literal wonderland out in the middle of nowhere with perfect weather. Um, But there isn't a lot of queer people around. Like there aren't a lot of queer people there. Or maybe there are. And I, in just, and in that moment, it wasn't as, you know, it wasn't, it was, what year was it like 2000 2001 like it was okay to be gay but like not everyone (laughs) was Mm -hmm. was as uh open-minded as they are now even though like not a lot of people are that open-minded yeah yeah it, it was it's different and i think that like on on islands specifically like guam where they have a rich history of like being colonized and all of these you know imperialistic things they there tends to be um like an air of we just don't talk about these things in in spaces like that and and also there was a huge like military influence there most of the people that lived there were like displaced by the military or like worked for the military or you know lived in you know, not the best conditions because of the island being, you know, overrun by greater forces. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But yeah, so uh, I was maybe like one of very few queer people in my high school that were out, you know. Um, Was it an American high school? Yeah, yeah, it was a high school for... uh, 
federals like uh, employees student like federal employees dependents so it's guam high school the most creative name ever oh my god uh and military kids you know people who worked for the government send all their students there and they're just um they're department of defense schools so there are a ton of them all over the world um but we primarily would um you know associate with the ones in the far east which is like japan korea um and the micronesian islands you know like guam saipan that that Mm -hmm. that that area it was in guam where you kind of came into your sexual identity yes yeah it was like a slow burn from the age of 10 to the age of 17 until i finally just until the I blossomed, I guess. (laughs) My parents are weirdly liberal um, for being in their 60s. I think that my parents have like a general respect for people who respect them, no matter like who they are. I never really heard them say negative things when I was little um, or, you know, growing up. My brother, yes, but not my parents. Mm. Uh, My brother was definitely, like, my biggest tormentor in high school, so, you know, like... (laughs) I remember one time he uh, won the highest score on all of the like all of the computers in our high school like he won the highest score in like minesweeper or some stupid computer game and he changed <laughs> he wrote his name on the high score like board as it said rc is a dyke <laughs> and so like all of these computers had like the highest score for whatever video game or whatever computer game uh, as me i'm a dyke well, which was great okay fine cool i was you know so that's cool phil (laughs) but you know that was high school i'm over it was it painful at the time though oh yeah Yeah. it was but in that time my former self just responded to everything with anger Mm. so even though it was painful i just responded in kind with being mad and that kind of doesn't necessarily get rid of the pain but it makes it easier to deal with open anger and internal resentment did your parents ever negotiate that relationship with you or was it something they just let you figure out with your brother they were very hands off I feel like they had too much going on to be able to negotiate that relationship with my brother and I I don't think that they could have made it any different. And I think when I was young, I was convinced that they secretly agreed with him, which is why they let it happen for so long. But who knows? And that's what therapy's for. (laughs) (laughs) After, you know, time and therapy and all these great things, the relationships are better. My understanding is better and their understanding is better, but mostly, like, I feel like I've made peace with that part of of our relationship. And not just, like, made peace, like, I really, like, 
thank you for the experience. I'm moving on type mm-hmm. of piece. Mm-hmm. We talk, we're fine now. We, everything got better with my family once I moved out of the house. <laughs> I mean, everything, our relationships really started to thrive when I was no longer in their presence all the time. I guess I needed time and space to be myself rather than being this person that they want think I am yeah mm-hmm. but sometimes sometimes I think we all do chapter five Mike growing up the firstborn son of a first-generation Vietnamese American family Mike felt a lot of pressure to pursue the American dream even though he was a straight-a student Mike knew he was also expected to get a home, a wife, a monogamous marriage, and 2.5 children, which makes his parents' acceptance of his unconventional life all the more surprising. My name is Mike. I'm 33, and I graduated high school in 2006. I was born and raised in Houston, Texas, went to Austin for undergrad and lived there for about 10 years. So still very much Texas boy. It's funny, like, when you grow up in it, you don't realize how conservative it is. And I guess in retrospect, it's it's kind of both things. Like, it's, I was surrounded by gun-toting, you know, anti-choice, like, environment. But I also grew up in the suburbs of Houston and kind of like an affluent neighborhood that was pretty progressive and liberal considering, you know, that we're in Texas. Like one of the things that I realized not until I got into college was that like the Civil War was not about states' rights, but that's what I was always raised to believe. You know, that's what all my textbooks said. That's what my teachers told me. And I was like, no, it's about fucking slavery. Like as an adult, I've had to do a lot of unlearning because I just thought that this is how the world is and because these are the values that my community had or these are the values that I was taught in school. Thinking about like queer representation in my community, it was like non-existent. And it's not like we had like people marching in the streets saying like fags are going to hell or something like that. But it was also not a place that I ever saw like two gay men together or holding hands or anything like that. And I think that's why for a long time I didn't know what gay meant. And I didn't know that gay relationships or romance existed and that that was a possibility for, my, for me, you know? I could have this attraction to men, but I would still always end up with a woman and I would still have my white picket fence and my nuclear family and all of that. And that just, that was the default in my mind. My parents came over during the war, so they both fled Vietnam in 75 and took meandering ways to find each other somehow in Arkansas, of all places, and then made their way down to Houston, where they decided to build a life for their family. So the third most spoken language in Texas is actually Vietnamese. It's a huge Vietnamese population. I think it's because it's a very similar sort of like climate as Vietnam. And um, kind of once you have a foothold there, then like that's where the community goes to. So there's four of us, my sister and then my two parents. They're still together. Um, my sister is seven years older. 
my parents had my sister when they were, um, my mom was 19, my dad was 21. They were very, very young and they had just married the year before. They didn't have their support system. They were kind of off on their own. And I don't like, honestly, I don't think they were ready to be parents. And I think my sister upbringing suffered as a result of that. She's a bit of a wild child, a little bit of a black sheep, got into trouble. And again, I think that was the contrast with me is that like, I was like the quiet, like straight A student, right? And so there's a lot of tension there between my sister and myself, but I've always, I think, been like the level-headed one and, and come out as kind of the nurturing big brother for her at times. We used to be really, really close, like attached to the hip close. And in the last several years, that relationship has deteriorated. And it, it, it's, it's me growing up and maturing and seeing my sister through different lenses, I guess taking the rose-colored glasses off a little bit. Growing up as the only boy of like a, a very, I guess, conservative culture, like Southeast Asian culture, and in the South, I felt, yeah, I grew up with these really heteronormative conservative ideals, you know? My parents are Republicans, which is baffling to me. Uh, I can't talk to my parents about politics. I mean, I can, but it usually doesn't end great because um, I'm very opinionated and so is my dad. But I felt a lot of pressure to perform a certain way. I think for a long time, I lived my life for other people, whether it be my parents or my friends or my community or what have you, because they expected me to be a certain person, to achieve certain things, to uh, do certain things with my life that I thought that I wanted, you know, because I didn't know anything else. And it wasn't until my 20s where I really started discovering my own voice and my own wants and realizing that I can deviate from the things that those authority figures prescribed for me. But yeah, I, my dad is the oldest boy of eight. Uh, my mom is the middle child of nine. And within our culture, he's the oldest boy. I'm his eldest boy. So there's a lot of like patriarchal responsibility that I'm supposed to uphold. I'm supposed to carry on the family name and that's not really gonna happen at this point. Nothing would make my parents more happy than if I were to settle down with like a Vietnamese woman and have our like 2.5 children and give them those grandkids. And I think that's obviously changed now and they don't expect that obviously and that they, they're they happy that I'm happy. And that's taken a lot of growth and education and talking um, on their part. So I, I'm super appreciative and, uh, and see them for doing that. But yeah, I think that's why they came here, right? As immigrants, they, they came here to provide the best for their family and provide the best for their children and, and give them opportunity that they didn't have. And I think in their minds, obviously being gay is harder, right? And so I don't think that that's the life they saw for me. I was the good kid, you know? I, was, I followed the rules, I didn't make any trouble. I got good grades and I did everything I was supposed to do. I was so scared to come out because I felt like this is gonna be the one ding on my record, right? Like you could have been valedictorian, graduated at the top of your class, received all your accolades, done whatever you needed to do. But if you're gay, it doesn't mean anything, right? That just erases all of your achievements in life. And that was my biggest fear when I came out. And it's because I didn't want to disappoint my parents, right? Is that they had given me so much opportunity and, and afforded me this lifestyle. And I was gonna, in my eyes, I felt like I'd squandered it somehow.
it was a lot of pressure, but you can't, you can't live your life for other people because you're just going to always be disappointing someone. And it's taken a lot of years to kind of let that go, to say that I am not going to be this person you expect me to be, but that doesn't mean that I am not successful or that I'm not a good person or that I am, not, I can't be happy. There's just another path. When I was going to school, I was lucky to have a really diverse kind of cohort. Um, we were quarter black, quarter white, quarter Hispanic, quarter Asian. And so I had a lot of Asian friends, a lot of Vietnamese friends. And it's funny, the interesting thing is, is that I felt like I didn't fit in with any of them and wasn't as a part of my community as they were. Because when my parents came over, I think they made a conscious decision to assimilate. Like, they didn't really speak Vietnamese at home. We ate a lot of Vietnamese food, and we, like, attended the festivals and things like that, but it wasn't as ingrained in my, like, day-to-day -day life as I think a lot of my other friends were. And I'm thankful for that because I think it did give me a little bit more freedom. And, um, like, the community as a whole felt more conservative than my particular family was. And I think that made me feel more comfortable later in life to come out to them and to have them meet my polyamorous partners, you know? Um, and so I've been really lucky in that regard that I think my parents are more progressive. I just don't think that I knew that growing up, right? I thought that my Vietnamese community was kind of this like monolithic, judgmental, patriarchal kind of entity that I had to be like subservient to. It was weird because it's, it's one of those things that for a lot of my standard groups, I felt like an other because I was Asian. And then within my Asian community, I felt like I wasn't Asian enough type thing sometimes. So I, was, I felt kind of this weird kind of outsider mentality on top of being queer and being an outsider. So I think it's, it's all been a search for like identity and, and again, trying to feel like, do I know what I really want and, and what I, aspire to have out of life. So my dad's youngest brother is gay and he had a partner for as long as I could remember. It was never presented to me as Uncle Danny is gay or that Greg is Uncle Danny's partner. It was just that's Uncle Danny and Greg. I didn't know that they were in a relationship. They could have just been roommates for all I knew. I have this distinct memory of like driving with my mom. This was probably when I was 16 or 17 and her making a comment about like Uncle Danny's lifestyle or something. And I, I don't exactly remember the context of the conversation, but in retrospect, it was her, I think, trying to gauge my reaction and like my parents knew I was gay. They knew. And I Why think did you say that? Well, because they told me that. <laughs> when I when I came out, my mom said that she knew, um, and that she always knew. And it's a very my mom type of thing to say, which is like very like self-centric of like, I knew. And like, good for you, gold star for mom. Um, a lot of people knew. But I think that that the conversation, the car ride was her trying to see if she could like, not necessarily out me, 
but get some sort of confirmation one way or another. What age was this? Like 16 or 17, yeah. And I think I played it off and was just like, oh yeah, Uncle Danny and Greg. Um, you knew what the deal that was, right? At that time, yeah. At that, by that time, I, I knew what she was trying to do. They existed in my world, but I wouldn't say they were an example of like a healthy gay relationship. It's not something that I ever talked to them about. And I never really saw their dynamic, I think. Like Greg was around, but it's not like they were in the kitchen together cooking or that they were like being romantic. And I think that was partially because of my family's like comfort with it, you know? My parents met my partners maybe a month ago. In the beginning, I wasn't necessarily very overt about that relationship with my parents. Um, but as, I just like teared up from talking about that. Um, <laughs> as things progressed, I would make more and more references to them. And they were clearly a part of my life. And I wanted my parents to know that. Um, and I think probably maybe like a year into it, I like made some reference to them as my boyfriends and have never really like shied away from that. But it's funny when my mom got here, she was on the phone with my uncle and she said something about like, oh, Michael's roommates. And I was like, when you stop the car, they're not my roommates. You're very clear on this. Like, you know, you're not about to meet my roommates. They are so much more than that. And, and I like lectured my mom for a good like five minutes because I was, I told her that I understand that the language can be hard. I understand that making this change and, and referring the, to them as my partners is difficult. I believe in your ability to change and adapt and understand this. But I was like, it's important to me that you acknowledge them for who they are because referring to them as my roommates really minimizes the importance of this relationship and the amount of work that we've all put into this relationship. So with that preface, like 15 minutes later, she walked into this apartment and met them. And my parents were loving and gave them hugs and we spent the weekend together and they got to know each other and uh, the boys were invited home and for the holidays and to eat good food and stuff like that. And I think my parents have grown so much in, in the last couple of decades and just been more willing to, to listen and to not judge. Um, and ultimately, they said, as long as you're happy, then we're happy for you. And I think that's what anybody ever wants to hear from their parents. They may not understand everything, they may not agree with everything, but I think being here and seeing the three of us interact, they realize that I'm happy, I'm in a healthy relationship, and we take care of each other, and that it's not some like weird gay sex cult or something like that, you know? And it was important for me, in, because my parents have never met one of my partners before, let alone a throuple, at least as my partner. They've met boys I was dating on occasion, but it was never like, mom and dad, this is my boyfriend, blah. But the thing is, is that I wasn't nervous about it at all, because I have full confidence in the boys of who they are and that they would make good impressions. I was more like worried about how much my parents would embarrass me <laughs> to them. <laughs> but yeah, it was, I don't want to say liberating because I don't think I was waiting for that approval. I'm, I wasn't going to let it stop me from, from living the life I was leading, but it, 
it, it was, I think, reassuring that my parents are welcoming this aspect of my life and that I don't have to worry about compartmentalizing different aspects of my life in order to be happy. I have to give them a lot of credit. And it's, again, one of those things that I have had to learn over time. And like day to day, month to month, I realize more how much they worked for the life that I have right now, how much they sacrificed in order to, to provide me this opportunity and, and how much, again, they've grown as individuals to really embrace who I am as a person and embrace and love me and embrace the people that I love. Yeah, I want to give them a lot of shit, but, but they are incredible. They really are. Thanks for listening to Fruit Bowl. Want to know more about this episode's featured interviewees? You can find links to their full-length interviews in the show notes of this episode. Fruit Bowl interviews are edited for length and storytelling clarity and are approved by each interviewee before being released. Excerpts featured in this episode have been chosen and re-edited in support of the episode's theme. Fruit Bowl is produced independently without any corporate media infrastructure or full-time staff. Help support our efforts to collect, archive, and share personal stories about queer coming of age by making a small monthly donation through Fruit Bowl's Patreon membership. Patrons get early access to episodes, behind-the-scenes updates, and exclusive video extras that are not available to the general public. Promote your business by sponsoring an episode of Fruit Bowl or dedicate an episode to a loved one. Sponsorships and dedications are 100% tax-deductible through Fruit Bowl's fiscal partnership with Seattle's Northwest Film Forum. Fruit Bowl receives no direct funding from Northwest Film Forum, only the use of their nonprofit status to receive tax-deductible donations. Learn more at fruitbowlpodcast.com slash donate or write Dave at fruitbowlpodcast.com for more information. Social media platforms often censor mentions or depictions of queer sexuality. Accounts are suspended or banned outright without notice or due process. As a result, promoting Fruitbowl is an uphill battle, so we rely on you to help spread the word. Tell your friends about Fruitbowl. Rate and write a review on your favorite podcast platform. You can find links to all our social media at fruitbowlpodcast.com. Fruit Bowl is created, produced, and edited by Dave Quantic. That's me. This has been a production of Cubed Media, all rights reserved. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.